Hello and welcome to the latest edition of BM Talks with me, Helen Thomas, the CEO and founder of Blonde Money, macroeconomic research consultancy. Delighted today to be joined by Panagiotis Vlakopoulos, Managing Director at CPP Investments, one of Canada's largest pension funds. Today, of course, he is speaking in a personal capacity, and I'm sure we're going to hear some useful, candid remarks about the market and what he thinks is going to happen from here. So hello, Panos, and welcome. Uh, Hello, Helen. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm going to kick off with the one thing I keep being asked all the time, inflation. Uh Now, you are uh, work for an entity with a very long time horizon. I'm sure inflation is often a topic of discussion. But what do you think is going to happen? Right. Uh, Rightly so, as you say, inflation is is a hot topic. And it is something that we have been looking into uh, way before the pandemic, uh, for a variety of reasons. In a nutshell, I'll, I'll, I'll start with a conclusion. I think that inflation is probably here to stay. I do not think that it's going to be rampant, but it's probably going to be above the level that we have experienced uh, in the recent, whatever, almost 30, 40 years now, right? Since the last case that we had inflation and uh, forced the central banks to um, adopt a formal policy target against inflation. Obviously, since um, uh, the financial crisis, most of the central banks uh, with various degrees of uh, success, lack thereof mostly, uh, have been trying to boost inflation. Um, and uh, this time around, I think that they may get a little bit more than they are bargained for. Um, one of the reasons why we believe in, inf- I mean, there are a variety of reasons why we believe that it's here to stay, some of which are uh, symptomatic, ephemeral, if you want, and some of which are more structural and would, uh, would uh, force inflation one way or another. Um, I don't want to be you know, blabbing on, but the, the the structural ones is peak Amazonification, you know, uh, peak globalization, uh, um, whatever workforce mobility we had is, is already done. Technology obviously uh, helps uh, contain inflation through productivity, but I think that probably the bulk of, of that we have already seen or priced for. And now the more episodic ones uh, include, of course, the massive debt that has been already accumulated by governments. Uh, and on top of that, uh, through the uh, fiscal spending, another much bigger amount. So inflation is one way to deal with that problem. But it also has to do with politics and redistributive redistributive um, uh, policies that this new U.S. administration is going to have. And finally, uh, let's not forget that the Fed has uh, uh, adopted formally uh, an alternative inflation target, which, uh, you know, mandates mm-hmm. them to stay put while inflation is crossing their upper uh, previous limit. Sketch out for me what happens, let's say, maybe next 12 months, where they stick very much to their line of, um, you know, waiting for 
inflation to running the economy hot, waiting for inflation to run very hot, so that on average, in a long period, uh, in a longer period, it's it's around two percent. Do you think that they hold their nerve? Because in that scenario, do you see the market pricing in significantly higher US rates? I mean, for example, in one year's time or in the longer term, where is 10-year US yield going to be? Right. Um, so currently, and, and, and that's a, a point of debate that we have been having uh, for some time now, uh, up until, I would say, just before the election, the market only decided to um, uh, reflect the way that they are thinking about inflation via the break-evens because nominal rates were kept very low. There was rampant uh, conversation uh, between um, very formidable global central banks about negative rates, RBA, RBNZ, Bank of Canada, Bank of England even, um, so the nominal space was not a space where the market decided to pick the fight with inflation, but break-even started moving higher. And then since the election and, you know, a government that now uh, is, is enacting uh, policies that are inflationary, uh, the market decided that it's probably time to price that in nominal rates as well. The big question is what the Fed is going to do. Are they going to stick to their guns while this is happening or are they going to flinch? My guess, and if we were to follow their you know, official language, is that they will stick to low rates until such time inflation gets priced beyond the short term, but more to the medium to longer term. Obviously, there are mm -hmm. risks into that, but they think that they are holding the uh, antidote for any kind of risk like that, which is the short-term rate, which they then they can uh, they can uh, jack and contain inflation by slowing things down. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the sequencing is probably going to play out like that. The Fed is going to stay put until inflation permeates the short-term horizon to medium-term horizon. And depending on what kind of inflation we're getting at the time, i.e. is it because of, you know, temporary shortages or is it something mm. that is more structural, then the Fed will respond. But I think that it is, I don't want to say premature, but we need to follow the sequencing of what is going to happen and, and not try to think, you know, where the end result is going to be. Now, to answer directly your 10-year uh, yield in a year from now, um, I would say that it would be roughly around where we are now, plus or minus 20, 25 basis points, something like that, because the, uh, the, there is a way that this inflationary wave that is, is going to come upon us is not going to uh, be... Um, uh, commensurate with the increased economic activity that normally brings inflation via, you know, wage pressures and so on and so forth. But mm -hmm. it might be of a nasty variety where uh, productivity and output are not commensurate with the higher inflation. And that's probably something that the Fed is not hoping to get, but they may get. So... Mm -hmm. I think that the nominal rates are not necessarily, I think they're going higher, but I do not think that they're going to go astray, let's say. 
Yeah, so you're sketching something in the direction more of stagflation than reflation. Not necessarily stagflation in the sense that you won't get any growth. All I'm trying to say is that for the last 30 years, we have been having some growth or uh, anemic growth, but without any inflation whatsoever. Mm. Uh, now we're going to get some growth, but the inflation that we're going to get together with it is going to be disproportionately larger. Not rampant, not uncontrolled. Mm. I'm not talking about, you know, Germany in the beginning of the previous century or anything like that. But it will be something that is going to be relatively uncomfortable. The interesting part is that most people that have dealt with actual inflation in the market are either very old or they are not in a capacity to uh, <laughs> deal with it. So my thinking and fear is that uh, uh, we won't know, the market will not know how to handle it. And it will, um, it will create uh, side effects that are hard to predict just because there hasn't been any relevant uh, recent yeah. uh, history or relevant recent uh, experience. Turning to the growth side of this, and let's look at the pandemic. Um, how do you think the pandemic plays out? There, you know, Are we going to be back to normal second half of this year? What is normal? Uh, you may well know, obviously, at Blonde Money, we talk about the different normal. Uh, we, we're expecting some pretty seismic shifts in the way everybody lives and works. How do you see it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, the 100-year pandemic uh, that we've experienced in a global scale, like the one that uh, you know we haven't seen, as I said, in 100 years, is unlikely to go away. Even if the virus goes away, its effects and the path that we followed to deal with the pandemic-induced crisis are going to be with us for some time. Of that, I am as certain as one can be. And you can think about it in a variety of different dimensions, not only um, you know, the psychological, uh, mental health of the working population, uh, perhaps their change of attitude in, term, in, in, in uh, terms of uh, spending versus uh, saving. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the idea of having a workspace or a work uh, station per worker for office jobs is a thing of the past. Uh, this will have profound implications about all the businesses that, mus that mushroom around office spaces, especially in the big metropolitan areas. It will have implications about uh, pricing for dwellings. It will have implications about the longevity or direction of infrastructure that, uh, that uh, is used uh, for transportation. And uh, uh, more importantly, I think that it will change our attitude of work-life balance. Um, I think that uh, going to the office is going to be viewed as not necessarily the exception, but like a pleasant break on an otherwise, you know, working from remotely type of, uh, of thing. And I believe that there are gains to be had both for the employer and the employee on this, which are going to be shared appropriately, I hope. And um, Sorry, when you say gains, you mean monetary or everything? Well-being? Everything. Sa sa savings in, uh, you know, uh, commute is a yeah. nerve-wracking experience. Um, so you will have less of that. That, that's, that, that will make the uh, uh, 
a worker more productive and it will save him money and it will save him aggravation. Uh, and his increased productivity, which we have already measures for, uh, because people have been working for home, from home for more than a year now, um, you know, are tangible. They're there. You have three kids of varying ages. Have they... How have they responded to the pandemic? Do oh, they... the, kids, the kids are so, I mean, all human is, is, is extremely adaptive, as, you, as we've seen. But children okay. are the most adaptive, adaptive cohort, uh, you know, in our society. They will figure out ways to do things, and they have already. I mean, it's not without, it is not without cost or without, you know, the, the pains to go from one state to next. But mm. I have no... I don't worry about them. I just want to pick up on your point about infrastructure because, you know, obviously the company you work for uh, is, I'm sure, heavily involved in that sphere, as so many pension funds are. Again, I know you're talking in a personal capacity, but um, there is clearly going to be big infrastructure spending. We know that's coming in the US, uh, some in the UK. It's going to be very attractive for governments, although it does take a very long time for uh, for these projects actually to get off the ground. You mentioned about offices. Do you have any other infrastructure projects that you think will be good opportunities going forward? Well, I am not. Um, I am not in the department that deals with infrastructure at CPPIB. Therefore, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. But uh, the United States, uh, the same as uh, every other nation around the globe, have figured out that their health infrastructure needs to be fortified. I hope that this is not forgotten as the virus, you know, uh, melts away. But uh, that's one place where we're going to have to uh, not only build better infrastructure, but also be supported by domestically produced uh, materials and, um, and technologies even. so. Because we have found out uh, through the virus that the dependencies that we have to other countries uh, that could themselves, in a time of crisis, need all the capacity they have, is not a good recipe to go forward. And that's actually one of the reasons why I was thinking about inflation, because all the all this elaborate, globally optimized way that we will run the economy needs to be broken down or at least segregated somewhat in order to ensure robustness. So we're going to trade in price, i.e. we're going to pay high prices, higher prices, uh, in order to be robust and predictable. Uh, now, the rest of the infrastructure can also be something that was badly needed. In Europe, for example, even the most uh, wealthy nations have crumbling schools, a train network that hasn't been upgraded for decades, uh, roads that are not, you know, um, in the in a, they have not been maintained properly for a long period of time. So this becomes a together with the green movement uh, that comes handy and it has sort of gained acceptance. I mean, nobody can be ever seen talking against anything green today. God forbid. So this, uh, this combination um, is going to uh, remove any kind of economic or even output consideration, if you want. They'll just do stuff, whatever is that. Some of which, as I said, is badly needed, 
but others that would normally find, you know, the economic frictions and the viability problems being blown away because we can't, because we've pulled the moral hazard of spending and the deficits are going through the roof um, in the name of infrastructure, whatever that means. We talked for a second there about, you you mentioned debt, Mm -hmm. clearly is going to be with us and growing for some time. Yeah. What does that mean for investment in bonds? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the adage is, of course, you know, any, anything that you can get in nominal space is, uh, is going to be questionable. There's no question about that. Uh, all the governments are much more indebted. The deficits are going through the roof. And there are a lot of uh, uh, formidable investors talking against the bonds. I am just not totally convinced that it is possible to not have bonds in one's portfolio. You just need to be much more selective. Mm. Uh, You need to be at the quote-unquote right point on the curve. But um, the problem is that any other kind of uh, income or future income, you know, cannot be... Uh, guaranteed. I mean, government bonds cannot be guaranteed because there are defaults or there could be enough inflation to uh, to render them useless or even uh, uh, to the detriment of one's portfolio. But as I told you earlier, I do not think that inflation is going to be, you know, an uncontrollable uh, process which is going to uh, totally destroy the value of bonds. So I do think that there is a place of bonds still in the day. You just need to be, as I said, much more selective in the place, i.e. which jurisdiction, which country, and what part of the curve. Crypto. Aha. Uh-huh. Is, is that now, are you looking at that as a, you know, an alternative investment? What are your personal views there? Right. So that's something very interesting. So because, again, of my son, I was introduced into crypto very early on, and I, I have been following it uh, uh, very with with lots of interest, I should say. I think that crypto uh, is going higher, not for any other reason, other than um, the fact that we've printed so much money. So once the supply of money, and I'm not a monetarist, I'm not an economist, so. If you see me going down the wrong path, please stop me before it's too late. But I I am of the belief that there is an amount of money that can be printed that will then render anything that is tangible or even intangible going up in price. And I think that because the market is a psychological game between humans, uh, higher prices attract buyers. But after a while, the consideration of what is that you're buying against your money becomes a mute point. If, and as I like to say, if something can go up six times in a matter of, you know, five months, losing all of it is not a bad proposition. The risk-reward is still good. So do I think that there is substance? The technology definitely has substance. The application, as it usually is the case, the the first applications are usually not that great. But the technology behind it does have substance and will change things going forward. Do I think that crypto should be part of one's uh, uh, um, 
uh, portfolio? Yes, but it should be rightly sized so that if it evaporates completely, it is not going to be a life-changing event. That's probably the wisest words ever spoken about cryptocurrencies. Thank you, Panos. Um, you, t- you mentioned that if we talk also about, in terms of asset allocation, different countries, right? developed markets versus emerging markets, mm-hmm. where do you see opportunities there? Huge debate, uh, internally even, in my own head, that is. Um, so normally, when we get a rebound like the one that we have experienced in uh, 2021, um, you know, developed markets do well and emerging markets do much better, i.e. emerging markets are usually a higher beta in the global economy. Or that's how they have, they have uh, reacted, uh, at least uh, in the recent history. Not this time. And uh, if you ask me for good reasons, which, as usual, you know, afterwards you can even find good arguments for, but once you're in front of them, it is very difficult to, to resist. So, um, uh, obviously, uh, uh, emerging markets did not have the capacity or even the political willingness, which, which again goes against capacity. Like if they had the possibility of doing something, they might have elected to do something. But because they couldn't do anything, their political uh, um, um, choices were ones whereby if you, can, if you do not have a health infrastructure to stress, to start with, then you really have no choice. You just let, let this thing go rampant and, and, and live with the consequences, which is kind of what we have experienced in, in different places, with very few exceptions. Asia, for example, has, has shown a different way. That's one reason. The second reason is that in the past, or at least in the recent past, whenever there was a mishap, China was very forthcoming with uh, provision of liquidity, both in the monetary and fiscal. They never had, I mean, it is very difficult to tell one from the other there. This time around, they haven't. This time around, they have sort of pulled back. Also, the other thing is that during the crisis, the response of emerging markets was atypical of what would happen in the past. In the past, when there was a crisis, irrespective of whether it was homegrown or domestic, the central banks would like, high rates in order to defend the currencies so that they don't render the full country insolvable. This time around, because there's a lot of local debt, they haven't done that, and they administered the developed market um, medicine, which is cutting rates. So once you are, you know, you have a little bit of visibility that you're getting out of the slump, in the past, you had massive opportunities for investment in emerging markets which this time around have not been there. So that's a third reason why emerging markets have not behaved or reacted, if you want, the same way like before. Now, going forward, you know, the usual stuff, demographics, um, you know, raw materials in some cases, geopolitical significance, I think are going to play a role here. So uh, for my taste and because... As I said, most of the countries are becoming more isolated or they want to, if you want, hedge their bets or reduce their dependency, especially on potentially contentious suppliers. 
Uh, I think that is going to make anything that is in LATAM much more desirable and uh, attainable as a destination for investment from the United States rather than Asia. So ah, okay, interesting. I would think that going forward, um, you will, I mean, Asia will have their new other new sponsors that will, you know, deal with each other probably much more. But the idea or the modus operandi that we had up until now whereby, you know, China finances United States so that the United States buys the stuff that China makes at very low margins um, is probably not going to be the model for the future. Yeah, so somewhere like Brazil, yeah. even though if we took your first point, as you say, historically they had like 12% interest rates. Now it's more mm-hmm. like it's been down to 2%. Exactly. And um, people that have been trading Brazil all their life, including me, are missing a digit in that interest rate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's <laughs> so true. That they're missing. They're missing tens of percentages. And, and even though, as you say, they, there was a political decision to be let's say, more laissez-faire on the virus, mm-hmm. actually, longer term, there may still be opportunities there because of this realignment. Is, is Brazil a country you were thinking of in Latin America? Brazil is, is interesting because it's one of the few places that I have actually shown very, very little um, response to this. Um, and Brazil did undergo, it was very unfortunate, because they finally managed to get their fiscal trajectory yeah. Uh, back to something that is perhaps feasible just before the virus and then the virus struck. So um, I think that the whole of Latin America, I mean, Brazil is the biggest uh, you know, economy there. Therefore, it cannot stay absent. Um, I think that there is, uh, there is opportunity, but it's not for the medium to long term rather than the absolutely medium. For the immediate, uh, for, for, for the next pages, I'd like to say, Perhaps it's interesting because it hasn't responded uh, almost not at all, uh, yeah. you know, to the pickup uh, in, in in global growth uh, that we have uh, going forward. Together, of course, with the uh, with the rampant prices of commodities, of which um, um, Brazil is a is a good exporter of. So, just coming towards the end of this, now we flip back to Europe politically. Uh, we have our eye here on Germany because obviously there's this big election in September. Yeah. There has been a huge rise of support for the Green Party. Actually, it's mm-hmm. been building for a long time, not just not just in the last few months. This has been going on for a few years. Mm-hmm. Then after after that, we have the big French election as well. Uh-huh. What do you expect for the future direction of Europe? Who who are the leaders going to be? What are they going to be doing? Yeah, so. There, I have to say, I'm playing back. You mentioned France. I remember when Macron got elected, I was, uh, you know, very um, hopeful that Europe finally found the bottom because I figured out that there would be a proper uh, uh, partner in decision-making called France that sometimes is south, sometimes is north. Therefore, it is not the strict austerity-based, you know, prescription for any illness that comes from the likes of Germany, Finland, Holland, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So, unfortunately, Macron, in the early days, you know, succumbed to uh, 
domestic issues, therefore he did not show the strength. He was a little bit the opposite of Margaret Thatcher, if you want. Uh, so he did not, he, he had an opportunity, which I think he missed it in order to uh, solidify France as an equal partner in the decision making. Now, having said that, I believe that the era for, era for austerity is gone. And luckily for that, because as I said now, the, the, the moral hazard of spending is out of the window. Germany does need to spend and can spend and should spend. And because we have this fig leaf called green development, more likely than not, it's going to happen. This time around, I am actually carefully and very quietly um, hopeful that uh, Europe will actually spend. Uh, and it's going, to, it's going to happen domestically. And uh, I think that it is absolutely, absolutely the right uh, decision to be made here. And I think we have both the backdrop, but also the catalyst and the excuse for this to happen. And the ECB, do they keep the bond vigilantes at bay by continuing with QE? Well, here's the other funny part, and that's one thing that I'm talking about the States, but I'm, I'm saying that for Europe as well, Germany to be more specific. The more that the central bank is, is, is holding down short-term interest rates, the more the inflationary pressures are going to go rampant. So uh, I think that both central banks are going to stay low until they see the white in the eyes of the inflation. Uh, because if they don't do that, then, you know, then they will have foregone their last opportunity that they had in order to get some of the inflation that they are seeking to get. Yeah. So, yes, is it more likely than not is going to stay put, but the European curves, like the German curve, for example, I think is going to go steeper. And I think it's going to steepen, uh, you know, on a risk-adjusted basis more than the one in the U.S. because, yes, the U.S. obviously... Whenever they do things, they are never shy. But if you look at the mental shift that the Europe has undergone and the numbers that we're talking about, the, you know, the stabilization fund, some of those funds are not even debt. They are proper handouts. For, you know, not that the debt that they have is not a handout, in my opinion, but that's a different conversation. But this one is explicitly a handout. So... Um, you know, I think that it's time for a new medicine in Europe. And um, as I said, I'm cautiously optimistic. Panos, yes. that was excellent. Thank you very much for that canter through various uh, different aspects of the future for markets. I really appreciate it. So thank you. Good luck with the vaccination. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm on Twitter at MarketBlondes or Helen at BlondeMoney.co.uk for feedback. We always love your views. Thank you again, Panos. Take good care. Bye-bye.